0: and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dr. Suchi Talati, the Chief of Staff for the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management at the U.S. Department of Energy. As a principal member of the FECM leadership team, Suchi is responsible for supporting the Assistant Secretary in advancing the office's mission. I was excited for this one because fossil energy and carbon management are such important topics as it relates to the clean energy transition. We cover a lot in this episode, including Suchi's journey and what led her to doing the work that she's doing now. And we also talk about big oil and the role of big oil in the clean energy transition and the role of fossil fuels in the clean energy transition. We talk about energy poverty versus climate change and how to balance those interrelated yet distinct issues. We talk about carbon removal, whether we'll need it, how much we'll need it, where it is in the adoption curve, some of the barriers to adoption, what it will take to get it to where it needs to go and what kinds of timeframes and how realistic is it that it will get there. We also talk about the role of policy, the role of government, the role of innovation, both breakthrough innovation as well as deployment. And we talk just generally about what some of the biggest blockers are to the clean energy transition and how we can unlock faster progress. Suchi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I was excited for this one. I feel like if if you look at my career, I've grown up all in small, high growth startups. You seem like a policy person through and through. And gosh, policy is such an important lever for climate. And therefore, I've been investing the time and trying to get myself up to speed. But I still feel like a newbie, uh, to be honest. So it's a real honor to have you on the show. And I feel like I can learn a lot from you.
1: You're way too kind, but I'm always excited to talk about climate and energy policy. And I've also been so lucky to have had the opportunity to learn from so many amazing people in this field. So excited for this conversation.
0: Awesome. Well, maybe for starters, just talk a bit about The work that you do at the DOE, both personally and the department that you're a part of, just to give some context to listeners.
1: So I'm the chief of staff of the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management at the Department of Energy. I joined the administration on January 20th, so I've been here almost a year. And it's been incredibly exciting and incredibly chaotic. But I think in, in definitely a good way. I think this administration and just you know all the people who have joined it are just so excited to do good work and DOE is at the center of that. And so when I joined as chief of staff, you know my priority was to really think critically about the role of fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry and also to think about carbon management and what that means As we strive towards net zero by 2050. And so, you know, really important pieces of that include frontline communities that have borne the brunt of the fossil fuel industry and those impacts, but also communities that have been huge parts of the labor input that have gone into both coal mining, natural gas extraction, and also, you know, the workers at these power plants. And so really thinking about what the energy transition means for both of these kinds of communities and how we can do the best work possible for them and for climate.
0: And so in terms of the mandate for the department, is it really focused on policy or are there other levers that are in your purview?
1: So the Department of Energy is largely an R&D organization and really focusing on innovation and also demonstration and, and deployment of really critical technologies across the energy space. There are applied program offices like Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, but also offices that really think about what that means outside of the innovation space, like the Office of International Affairs, the Office of Policy, Office of Congressional and Intergovernmental Affairs. And so these are all really important groups of people that are working together for one coherent mission, which is to demonstrate and deploy these critical technologies to solve climate change.
0: And maybe talk a bit about your journey. What is it that led you to do the work that you're doing? And you can start as far back as you want.
1: I started out as a biomedical engineering major, and then quickly figured out I was not good at biology, and so was and really had the opportunity to think about what I wanted to do and and the work that really inspired me. And climate change was kind of really starting to come to the fore at that point in time. And I was just really motivated to kind of pour myself into that work. And so I switched majors into environmental engineering and at the same time did my first policy internship in Congress. That kind of combined nexus of science and policy was just so inspirational to me and was kind of my main motivator for moving forward in the science policy space. I did my master's in climate society at Columbia, and it was a program that Deeply motivated me to kind of stay at the center of science policy and to, you know, think really hard about what climate policy really means for both, you know, for society domestically, internationally, and how, you know, you can make the most critical change on a personal level. After that, I I worked for a little while in the NGO sector and decided to pursue a PhD in engineering public policy, again, staying at the center of the science policy nexus, And thinking, you know, really hard about what it means to apply science and technology to making the best possible policy. And so during that time, got to work a lot on carbon management, carbon capture and storage, carbon dioxide removal. We really get the opportunities to have the luxury of thinking critically about issues and being able to research that and really just get inspired by your advisors and the work that exists And I was really lucky to have that space. I really enjoyed my PhD, but didn't personally want to stay in academia. I think research is is an incredibly exciting space, but I wanted to really apply my work. After that, pursued a AAAS fellowship in Congress and got to go back to Congress many years later after that first internship and work on applied climate policy. And it was at the start of the Trump administration, and so was a really partisan political time, but I got to see just bipartisan work actually happen even in the midst of the most partisan circumstances. After that time, I got really motivated to continue work on carbon dioxide removal. That was the year that I was in Congress was when 45Q was expanded to you know include direct air capture, when we were actually starting to have applied conversations about what carbon dioxide removal would mean on the federal level and how we could motivate work in that space, which was really i mean that has that had never happened before that time and that's something that i was incredibly excited to pursue and so went into the ngo sector to think a lot more about cdr governance policy and how we could move the federal needle on that and so when the biden administration came in with a concerted focus on cdr i was honored to have you know been asked to join the administration
0: and given that it sounds like your early passion was around helping address the problem of climate change. And of course, as you talked about the intersection of science and policy, there's such a wide landscape of potential solution areas. What is it that led you to CDR versus anywhere else where you could have anchored?
1: I think the CDR space when, especially a few years ago, there weren't a lot of people in it. And it was a recognition for me personally that CDR was going to be absolutely vital to reaching our climate goals. The entire climate energy space is fascinating and there are amazing, amazing people in all parts of it. And this was one where I thought policy and governance needed more thought and needed kind of more individuals dedicating their time to it. When we look at kind of the governance landscape, it's really tricky. We know carbon management is is a very sensitive issue and thinking through how to do it right, how to do it responsibly equitably, to ensure that deployment is just and sustainable, takes a lot of policy. That was the reason I really wanted to pursue it and to make sure that I could be part of shaping that.
0: And from what I understand, and the caveat here is that if you look at, say, the IPCC report, it suggests that we will need a lot of carbon removal, but directionally, it doesn't specify how or at what price or who pays for it. So how close are we from your standpoint to being able to fulfill anything close to what we'll need to fulfill to meet those projections?
1: We're far from where we need to be in terms of deployment, but I am so motivated by the momentum that we have in this administration. It's clear that CDR will be needed on any pathway to net zero or on any pathway to 1.5, Thinking through how to do that well and what that means is a really hard question. And as you said, like there are countless approaches that are kind of encapsulated by the CDR. There's engineered approaches like direct air capture or enhanced mineralization. There's more land-based approaches like soil carbon sequestration or afforestation. There's also ocean-based approaches like direct ocean capture or ocean alkalinity enhancement. These are all very different. I think what is really important is that we ensure they lead to durable storage. So they're actually removing carbon from the atmosphere permanently and that we're able to monitor, verify the actions that we're deploying. And so that means carbon accounting, verifiable carbon accounting, and also when it comes to deployment, ensuring that we're doing it equitably and through engaging the public. I think in the past, we really haven't thought through how to build out new industries, because that's not really something that we had the opportunity to do. I think we very much have that for this and it's rare. And so to think through what a new industry means and how to deploy it is something that we are absolutely focused on doing responsibly and in the best possible way. And I think the fact that we don't know what that means is actually a good thing because that means more people can provide input into actually shaping that.
0: In terms of the utility of... CDR. I mean, it seems that essentially we're taking it out of the air and storing it. Is there any value that's getting created in that exchange? And if so, who pays for it? And if not, then who pays for it? I think one really critical question is
1: here is who gets to assign value? And we put value on a lot of things that don't inherently have monetary value. And so at some point, the, it's the role of the federal government to pay for these types of removals. Now that said, that is policy that does not exist yet. And you know, when it comes to having carbon to you know convert or store, some doesn't inherently have any market value, but some do. And so, for example, we can utilize carbon right now for building materials, which do have inherent value. We can also convert the CO2 into chemicals, which have inherent value. But in terms of really thinking through what we need for on the scales that we're talking about, we're really going to have to invest in geologic storage. And in terms of that having value, it doesn't yet. We need government incentives. Now for something like 45Q does exist where you get $50 a ton for storing carbon um, from direct air capture. So we're starting to see those amounts come up. It's really not enough to pay for direct air capture right now. And so hopefully we'll see an expansion if reconciliation does pass to 45Q to enable industries to actually start investing in these spaces and be able to make a profit.
0: So you're saying that the hope is that the carbon that gets removed can be utilized to create products, for example, or serve other purposes, and that if there were things like solid accounting and mandates and or incentives to motivate companies to balance the carbon books, essentially, then that would... Help this market to form at the scale that it needs to.
1: Yes, you did. And an interesting thing that we started to see over the last year or two is is a lot of companies making net zero commitments or even net negative commitments. And that means CDR. And so we're starting to see companies themselves assigning value to removing carbon. Now, that said, a voluntary offset market is something that is not yet regulated. And so deciding what a real offset means and if we are applying carbon accounting in the best way to those offsets, I don't think that's happening yet. And so I think it does take the federal government to really define what high quality offsets are and how companies or the private industry should be interacting with a market. And I think that's something that is the role of the public sector to have that oversight and to ensure transparency.
0: I mean, as you kind of alluded to, the offset market takes a bunch of crap, and they, they take crap around transparency, they take crap around incentives, they take crap around additionality, they take crap around quality. What do standards look like in the offset market today, and from whom, and what should they look like, and from whom, in a more healthily functioning offset market?
1: I think the dangerous thing right now is is individual companies are defining what their own qualities offsets are and i think we're seeing different definitions that are helpful or not and you know i'm not going to say who's who but i do think having a standardized definition of what a high quality offset is can't come from the private sector it has to come from the public sector and ensuring that there's oversight over what these offsets are actually accomplishing also, I think, needs to come from the public sector, because public oversight is absolutely essential. These are not goals that only benefit these companies. These are goals to benefit the public. And so the public should be a a huge part of understanding if that's actually happening.
0: We've been talking a lot about CDR, but given that fossil energy is one of the core pillars in your department's Charter, can you talk a little bit about the role that fossil fuels are playing in the global energy system today and the role that they should play in the future and over what time period?
1: The role of the fossil fuel sector is still a really big one. You know, they contribute the bulk of the fuels to generate electricity today, bulk of transportation fuel. But as we have a national and global recognition, of what our climate targets need to be, we need to be really critical in thinking about what the future of the sector is and how it should be framed. From a very personal perspective and not an administration perspective, whenever we can choose a non-fossil option, we absolutely should. Because getting to net zero means that mitigating emissions is our absolute priority. And so if we can not build something that uses fossil fuels and uses solar energy, we 100% should. Now there are sectors where that's not possible. For those spaces, we have to make sure that we are doing the cleanest version of fossil fuels possible. I think an example of that, that plays a role in the kind of the global market right now, that's deeply controversial is LNG. So obviously there is an international dependence on U S exported LNG. But our natural gas supply chain isn't clean. And so we need to really focus on mitigating methane emissions to ensure that our natural gas supply chain is leak tight. I think another example is cement, right? The fuel to actually create cement right now is largely coal. That fuel could change But the process emissions that come from creating cement are not from fossil fuels, but emissions are being created. And so you do need something like carbon capture and storage, even if the fuels might change. And so there are situations where points source carbon capture really need to play this important role in our net zero framework. That doesn't mean that carbon capture and storage is the biggest part of net zero by any means. But to say that we don't need it isn't true. And I think the the questions now are how do we do it well and how do we do so economically?
0: One of the things that's come up again and again as we look at the or talk about the clean energy transition is that the fossil fuels are still being heavily subsidized. Can you talk a little bit about how those subsidies work, where those subsidies come from and why they're still in place?
1: So I don't have a ton of
0: expertise in this
1: space, but I will say that one of the executive orders from the Biden administration was to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies. And so, you know, we've been thinking really critically about what that means for R&D and how to apply that. Now, that's not something that I can talk about publicly in terms of what we're actually doing, but I do want to emphasize that this is something that this administration is very focused on. And I think Congress has to play a bigger role in actually eliminating the subsidies that you're talking about. I do think it's trickier than we want to think because of the international space and how we think about energy justice. So it's not an easy question. And eliminating these subsidies isn't something that we can do overnight. But thinking about phasing them out and phasing in subsidies for things like CDR and to increase subsidies for renewables is a broader conversation that we need to have.
0: Well, I'm really glad you brought up energy justice because I was going to head in that direction. Anyways, how do you think about energy poverty and climate change and how to prioritize when determining what solutions and how fast and things like that? Like, How do those two problems interrelate?
1: That's a really good question. It's hard. I think one of the biggest things for me that I have learned is that decisions should not be made in a vacuum from the federal government perspective. We need to be having a lot more conversations on the ground to understand what these communities are going through and what changes they would like to see. Obviously, there are technologies that we need to deploy and we need to do so quickly. There's there's no question about that. But ensuring that we have Community input, and that we're not just driving for public acceptance, but driving towards actually co decision making in a lot of these different projects and in terms of siting decisions and all of these guardrails. I think we need a different framework for thinking through how decisions are made. And I think that's a governance question across the climate energy space. When we look at something like CDR, There are a range of different approaches that different communities might gravitate to that have different regional resources or expertise that make the most sense for those spaces. We should be thinking about how to optimize those kinds of questions and those kinds of technologies through conversations with people on the ground.
0: Some would say if we don't get off fossil fuels immediately, every minute we're on them longer, we are wreaking havoc from a climate standpoint. And others would say that if we get off them too quickly, we're wreaking havoc from an energy poverty standpoint. Can both be true?
1: I think both are true. And I think that's why this is so hard. There's no easy answer. I think we have to be doing everything possible to help climate vulnerable populations and to mitigate emissions, to get to net zero, to get to net negative emissions. But we also have to take into consideration those that haven't benefited from the last 150 years of burning fossil fuels either that are only just starting to kind of move towards having energy independence, having society where they have a lot more freedoms. And that's not a decision that the United States should be making in a vacuum. There needs to be a lot more international participation, one, but also... Conversation focused on the global South and not conversation about the global South, but with the global South. How do they want to see these changes implemented? Most of the climate vulnerable populations are in the global South, but those are also the ones experiencing the most energy poverty. We shouldn't be making any of those decisions for them. So how do we have a coordinated conversation where we can help in the best possible way, but not make any decisions for anyone else?
0: One confusing thing that I've come across is that the climate advocates will say that the reason we're not off fossil fuels is because the fossil fuel industry is lying and they're stalling and they're withholding information and they're lobbying and they have trade groups and we have all the solutions we need to get 80%, if not a hundred percent, there today. You know, like this discussion, there's another perspective that says, well, if we get off too fast then the most vulnerable populations will suffer. So we need to be careful and these issues are complicated. Where does the truth lie? Do we have the solutions we need? Is, Is it really political will that we're lacking? Or do we not have the solutions we need? And if we don't have the solutions, where are the biggest gaps?
1: I think we have a lot of the solutions we need. I think we're seeing a lot of that funding starting to change, you know, if the infrastructure package passes, if reconciliation passes, to really start deploying a lot of these at scale. I'll say some of these technologies... You know, we haven't demonstrated yet and we're not ready to deploy on a commercial scale, for example, direct air capture. That's not to say that we can't do that within 20 years, but that will take concerted focus, effort and funding. I do agree that we need to ensure that a lot of these solutions are decoupled from the fossil fuel industry. There is a lot of harm that has been caused and a lot of sensitive conversations that we absolutely need to be careful of. And I think this office is one where we get to start drawing those lines. It's incredibly difficult to sit in a place where we know we need technologies that historically the fossil fuel industry has developed and supported, but that doesn't mean that we have to continue depending on them to build a new industry. I think, again, both are true, right? I think there's harms that have been caused. There's accountability that needs to happen for for these harms that have been perpetrated, but there's also partnership and creativity that we need to consider moving forward. And that's not to say I want to give fossil fuel companies a pass, but not all fossil fuel companies are the the same either. And so thinking through kind of what that means critically for the future and ensuring that environmental justice is not just a major priority, which it is, but that it's woven through all of our decisions is going to be a core part of how we work.
0: Okay. And then maybe talk a little bit about the role of market forces and the role of government and how those do interrelate and how they should interrelate when the machine is functioning optimally.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of roles for the government to play that we're not yet playing. And I'm super excited to help build a lot of these things that don't yet exist. When it comes to the market, I think public oversight is something that some people move away from that I think we really need. And especially when it comes to things like offsets, I also think there are things that need to be developed that really the only the government can do. And I think demonstration of technology is a good example of that, right? Like there's this huge value of death for a lot of technologies and the government is the only entity that can really take those risks and kind of get some of these technologies across the finish line to actually have commercial deployment. And so The government plays actually a really critical role in the private market when it comes to technology deployment that often people forget. From a Department of Energy perspective, being a lot more communicative about the role of our agency and the role of our investments and the successes that we have seen or helped foster is something that we really need to do. We've been critical to seeing a lot of wins in these spaces, and I'm absolutely certain we're going to see so many more.
0: I've heard some people say that when Republicans and Democrats argue about the validity of science or the urgency or the timelines or things like that, that there's actually a lot less disagreement about those things and more about the approach from a solution standpoint. So although that's not what's being spoken, that's what's actually driving the resistance. Do you agree with that perspective and what are the best ways for us to find common ground across both sides of the aisle to put meaningful and durable policy in place? I think
1: we're, yeah, I I mean, I agree. I think we're seeing a lot of bipartisan movement with a lot of these technologies. I do think that we have to recognize that we're not as far as we need to be and we should have been at this space 20, 30 years ago. And that's not something we can change, but I think there's often a need to say, well, both sides are for those decisions, but I think we need, we need to recognize that this administration is really pushing for these climate solutions, and we absolutely want to work with our bipartisan partners, but we didn't have a net zero by 2015 goal before January. Having these catalyzing goals, which sometimes might need to come from a particular party or from a particular administration, is necessary. That's not to say bipartisan work isn't absolutely critical, because it is. There's no way we move forward without bipartisanship. And incredibly thankful that we've seen so much of that in the infrastructure package, negotiations, and in reconciliation. We're obviously not quite there yet. I'm I'm hopeful that we will be. But the recognition of how fast we need to move and what we need to do to get there is something we're not quite aligned on yet. But I'm very hopeful that climate. And the goals we need to attain don't live in a partisan space anymore. It never should have. Science should never have lived in that space. The scientific method is proven. It's not one that has any sort of political motivation. I think we need to be a lot more conscious about moving this conversation outside of the partisan space as soon as we can.
0: We've talked a lot about the infrastructure and the transition that needs to occur. What about demand? What about consumption? Where does that fit in? Consumption and demand have continued to increase. Should we assume that that will happen in perpetuity and that that is synonymous with human progress or should we aspire for maybe a, a different way of living?
1: I think we should always aspire for human progress and for everyone to have access to the same benefits that we do. That said, that doesn't mean that we can't be more efficient with our resources and that we can't use resources in a more strategic way. I do think demand will increase as we continue to see different countries moving forward. But that doesn't mean that we can't help them kind of build out energy sources that aren't as polluting and to use resources more effectively and to really ensure that their communities are protected from the harms, from from fuel extraction and fuel use sometimes.
0: One thing I've wondered about is just that, I mean, we've spent a lot of time on this discussion and, and also just in general, a lot of the talk is about the U.S. and what the U.S. can do and what we can do federally and what we can do at the state level and what we can do locally. Is that really what it's about to get the U.S. moving or is there also kind of a global and an international set of negotiations that need to happen? And where do those fit in? How do those get prioritized? And then how do those just manifest? Like, what is the body that actually handles that on an international level?
1: Domestic international conversations obviously need to be moving in parallel. And the more domestic agreement we have, the more international commitments that we can make. This absolutely is an international conversation. Climate is not accomplished by one country. Addressing climate change can't happen by one country making decisions, or even if if the United States were to get to net zero, it doesn't matter unless everyone is getting to net zero. I think a lot more conversation needs to be happening around the global south with their input and participation. A lot of conversations focus on the EU and the United States and China, all of which have critically important contributions, but that doesn't mean other countries don't. And so I think being more inclusive in these conversations is something that I strive for and that I hope the administration strives for, too. You know, when it comes to negotiations, obviously, you know, the Paris Agreement was a huge moment in the global history of addressing climate change. I don't think it goes far enough, and we need to do a lot more in order to actually meet any of our climate targets negotiations are going to continue to be really difficult, but I think we need to pour more into them because that's the global stage is where climate lives.
0: A lot of times it seems like people break down different solution areas into breakthrough technology, deployment, and policy and government. And I'm oversimplifying, but is that how you think about the different areas for innovation and progress? And do you rank them? in any way? Or are they all part of the flywheel and kind of equal citizens?
1: I think policy touches everything. There is no commercial deployment without policy. There is no R&D without policy. Budgets are policy. I think that's a false separation between those sectors because those sectors depend on important policy decisions. Not to say policy is more important than R&D, but It's about creating policy that supports R&D, that supports breakthrough technologies and deployment. Policy is also prioritization. And so all of those decisions affect these other sectors.
0: And in that solutions bucket, there's a chorus of people that say that they don't understand why we're not investing much more into nuclear and that nuclear is the best lever we've got. And and then there's a whole bunch of others that say nuclear is bad and nuclear has waste and nuclear is expensive and the U.S. can't build big stuff anymore. And if it was going to be cost effective, it would have been cost effective a long time ago, et cetera, et cetera. In a personal capacity, do you have any view on that and what the future should be? So by no means am
1: I a nuclear energy expert, so I do not want to pretend that I am you all say that the vast majority of our zero carbon energy right now comes from nuclear. And so we should really be conscious of that. But at the same time, nuclear waste continues to be a huge issue. That's not really an answer to your question. That's to say that I think sometimes we, a lot of people who are making the arguments that you said kind of dismiss nuclear out of hand. I think that's really dangerous given how much we depend on it for our current zero carbon energy space. I think the future of nuclear holds a lot of promise. I think there's really interesting R&D in the advanced nuclear space. And I don't really think anyone can say what the future of that is. I think that's dependent on investments, dependent on breakthroughs. And I don't really think we have the luxury of ruling anything out or saying anything can't be part of our net zero plans.
0: And I'll ask you a similar question, but around natural gas. Some people say we need to get off it as quickly as possible. Some people say it's an essential bridge fuel, and other people say it's a long-term pillar of the clean energy transition. What's your view?
1: I'll say that I don't like making declarative statements about such a broad space. I'll say that you know we have goals to reduce our emissions by 50% by 2030 and to have a 100% clean electricity sector by 2035. What the role of natural gas is in that space, policy and the market will dictate. We're gonna to have to be very careful thinkers about what that means and how we ensure that communities that depend on natural gas resource extraction think about this. And so I don't think there's an answer here. Natural gas continues to be a really important part of our electricity sector. But how we create policy that leads to 100 percent clean electricity is going to be really important. I do think we're going to need CCS on gas at what scale. I don't know. And that's something that we're trying to figure out that this administration will be making critical decisions
0: around. And now that we're kind of doing a lightning round of lightning rod topics, I see that you have some geoengineering research in your past. I'm curious what your perspective is on that in terms of whether we'll need it and also just how important it is to be doing research in that area and where there's danger and where there's opportunity.
1: So super caveat, this is my personal capacity, absolutely not representing the administration in this part of the conversation. Solar geoengineering research is important. Now, I I want to caveat here that research and deployment are two very different things, both require really thoughtful governance. The United States has started investing in solar geoengineering research already, very minimally, but we saw $4 million appropriated for the first time in FY20, $9 million in FY21, and we'll see what happens in FY22. We need to ensure that there is a governance structure that has public oversight for that research. We also need to ensure that we understand what levels of research we're at and where we might be headed in the future. For people who say we really shouldn't be researching this because of moral hazard reasons, aren't considering kind of the moral implication of of not doing this research. One, this research could show that solar geoengineering is not feasible. That's an outcome that could happen. We really don't know because we haven't actually done enough to understand that. Making that assertion also, again, doesn't take into account the Global South. We can't claim to be speaking on their behalf or to be supporting climate justice if they're not part of the solar geoengineering conversation. The really hard part about solar geoengineering is that it's inherently global, but that means decision-making is also inherently global. What does that mean for research? How do we think about creating research oversight frameworks on an international scale? These are all really, really hard questions that we're grappling with in other spaces like CRISPR, for example. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be having the conversation. And I think the fact that the space has been so taboo for so long is actually really detrimental to people's safety and public participation in ensuring that they have a say in how it moves forward. Solar geoengineering isn't going to not happen because we say don't do it. We don't have control over the other countries. We don't have control over independent actors. What can we do to ensure that research is done safely and effectively and that we are putting in the right guardrails that we need to? And that's true for deployment. I don't think we're anywhere near ready for deployment if deployment is even feasible to actually lead to beneficial outcomes. But we don't know what other countries or other actors might do. How do we prepare for that? How do we think about that? And these are questions that we could leave to answer later. These questions require international answers.
0: One of the last questions, and this is also in a personal capacity, but the financial markets seem pretty sophisticated. And I'm just a startup entrepreneur. I'm I'm no expert on global financial markets. But one thing that has come up again and again, as I've been learning about this area is climate risk. And I'm just curious your perspective on how much of that risk has been factored in and how on top of that risk the financial markets are and how exposed or flat-footed we might be given that some people say that that risk is not factored in anywhere near the level that it should be already, let alone looking into the future.
1: I totally agree with that last statement. I do not think it's factored in at the levels it needs to by any means. I think the risk is far greater than we realize. And I think we see that with every new IPCC report that we haven't taken into account XYZ variables and actually this might happen or this might happen at at three degrees, at four degrees. That's not to say that we haven't thought about it and that some aspects of the global financial market have started really thinking about how to integrate that, but that can't be done in a silo and climate risk affects literally every sector. And so every sector has to take that risk seriously and... I don't think we're there yet, which is, you know, unfortunate. But I, I really hope that there's a lot more motivation to do so.
0: And a number of people that listen to our show, I mean, it's pretty diverse the audience, but there's people that work in big tech, there's people that work in startups, they could work in all kinds of sectors, alternative protein, they might work in ag, they might work in batteries and storage, they might work in wind, they might work in geothermal exploration, they might work in direct air capture or carbon capture and storage, they might work in CPG or carbon markets or aviation or cement or anything. I mean, pretty innovation focused, but there's a lot of others as well. So there's some quick context, but my question is what message do you have for them? So you've got their ears, they're listening. How should they be thinking about government? How should they be interacting with government? How should they be planning for things that government might do in the future? As someone who is relatively
1: new to the federal space, I think we need a lot more interaction with different sectors. We obviously have a lot, but I think a lot of people don't recognize that they can just email us. We would love to chat about innovative technologies, about ideas, about, you know, new spaces that you think we might not be aware of. And that's super exciting. And I don't think we have enough people who are actually wanting to reach out to us or not wanting, but know that they can, right, and not even thinking about what those conversations can look like. I would just really encourage everyone to kind of think through what government opportunities exist and to also interact with folks that are in this space. Good policy only gets made when there's a really deep understanding of every sector and how they interact and how we want them to interact. And we can't shape good policy until we have that information. And as much expertise as this agency has, and as, as much as you know, different policy experts have, they don't know things that you know. Please help us, help us make the best policy for your technologies to be able to move forward and to deploy
0: and to address climate change. You may have just answered this, but a related question is just, where do you need help? Who do you wanna hear from, if anybody? From kind of a government
1: perspective and from a DOE perspective, What I really want to do is interact with communities more. You know, we haven't had the opportunity because of COVID, but going on the ground, seeing a lot of these places, talking to people about their concerns, about how they envision the future, about what they need, are conversations that I haven't had the opportunity to have on the scale that I think we need to have them. That's something that, you know, we have to do and that we have to deploy, but I think that feedback of people who are on the ground is what this agency really needs.
0: Awesome. Well, Suchi, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I really enjoyed this
1: conversation and we touched on a a lot of deeply sensitive spaces. I live in the center of controversy, so it's still hard for me to answer these questions, but I hope everyone knows that we are doing everything that we can, and this is not something that we can solve alone, and that I hope becomes just a really critical part of all policy moving forward. It's not environmental policy, it's just all policy. And so ensuring that climate is really integrated into how we think about everything is what I hope for the future of this administration, but for the future of global policy.
0: Well, that's a great point to end on. So I can't thank you enough for making the time. I know you're busy and you're doing important work as well. So thanks again and wishing you every success. And if we can be, ever be helpful at MCJ, please let me know as well. Thanks so much, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co.